If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The story of East Germany has largely been told in the context of Cold War geopolitics. But while the country may have become an ideological battleground... Ordinary life there still carried on. People went to the local shop, took their kids to school and enjoyed trips to the cinema. Katja Hoyer is the author of a new book, Beyond the Wall, which re-examines the experiences of ordinary people in the GDR. And I spoke to her to uncover a new side of the communist state. Your new book, Beyond the Wall, is a sweeping history of East Germany that encourages readers to see the GDR in full colour rather than just monotonous grey. So what do you think that people in the West particularly have got wrong about East Germany up until now? Well, as you say, it seems to be a a kind of drab world of greyness, one that sees the entire country as one thing, the entire 41 years that it existed as one kind of time span. People have like a black and white almost like a photograph kind of idea of of what the country was like. And what I'm trying to do is introduce some individuals, some actual real-life people, some of them still alive, some of them not, um, to bring a kind of human face to the story and many human faces to the story. Um, Also to show the the whole geographical range, people forget that beyond East Berlin, um, that there's a whole world (laughs) kind of out there beyond the the wall itself. Um, So I'm taking my my readers all the way from the Thuringian Mountains up to the Baltic coast. So the the point is really to complicate the picture, to colour it in, to, um, to, to diversify the entire story of 
of East Germany, which is something that is important to me, both as a as an individual as well as as a historian. As you say, this is a very diverse story in terms of chronology, but also in terms of geography. But I wonder to start us off whether we could begin with your own connection to this story. You were born in East Germany. Can you tell us a bit about whether you have any memories of it or how your family reflects on their experiences of living there? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote this um, history of, of East Germany largely from my perspective as a historian. So it's by no means a memoir or a personal history as such. But there's, of course, a personal angle. And I always find as a historian, one has to be honest about that and kind of say where, where your background lies and kind of what skin you've got in the game, so to speak. Um, so I was a small child. I was four years old when, when the Berlin Wall fell. Um, so as such, I haven't experienced kind of the politics of it or... The, the way an adult would, would experience the, the GDR. My earliest memory is actually of the end of the GDR, as kind of the great uh, tumultuous situation in, in East Berlin. Um, the, the last day of the Republic of all days, so this kind of great celebration that, that East Germany undertook every year, done on a, on a huge dimension in 1989 because it was the 40th anniversary of the GDR's existence on the 7th of October. And my family decided, because it was a day off, to go into East Berlin you know, just to kind of have a have a family day off together with me. Um, and we went up in the TV tower and I sort of have this distinct memory of looking down, being totally in awe of this miniature world that, that was unfolding at the at the foot of the TV tower and especially all the people that seemed to be sort of gathering on, on Alexanderplatz underneath um, and being all excited about it and turning around to my dad and shouting, look at all these people coming. And, you know, when I shouted something about sort of police cars and things like that coming, my dad looked down and, and was shocked to see that actually the people that I was talking about were demonstrators and, and the cars were were police cars assembling to, to potentially you know, suppress this this kind of uprising or the demonstrations. Um, and he just took us, me and my my mum, who was pregnant with my sister at the time, so my dad was really quite worried about me and, and my mum, took us sort of by the hand and, and dragged us back into the elevator and back down um, and we drove home. And I remember kind of the chaos, the excitement, but also the anxiety of that as a kind of emotional memory quite well, despite having been so young. Mm, and I think that's something your book does really well. It brings in a human side to the story, as you mentioned earlier. You interviewed loads of ordinary people who lived in the GDR. Can you give us a couple of examples of the type of people you spoke to and what impressions they gave you of their life spanning those 40 years? So one um, that, that really stuck with me was a female soldier, Kerstin Haag, who I talked to um, because I found the whole idea very intriguing at the time. West Germany still constitutionally banned women from from taking up any role in the Bundeswehr that wasn't to do with either music or, or, or the medical sphere. So really being a soldier was an entirely male undertaking. Whilst in East Germany, due to the kind of socialist ideology around um, women being sort of part of society, as it were, on all levels, they'd started to integrate lots of women into into um, the army and I you know I knew that from a political point of view but I just couldn't imagine what it was like to be one of the first sort of women in there you know she she told me that there weren't changing rooms for example for women and so she always relied on like a male superior officer to basically stand guard in front of the room while she was getting changed into a uniform uh, so that nobody else would come in in the meantime. Um, or she couldn't be housed because they didn't have female barracks yet, so she couldn't be housed on site. She had to cycle in every morning from external 
living quarters and was therefore not not quite part of the same kind of group thing. But at the same time, she said the the camaraderie, the sort of banter that you'd expect, you know, that side of things. She was immediately felt part of the of her unit and and felt taken seriously at the same time. So. You know, this is just one example of where you have a political decision and most of the time historians focus on that. But actually what that means for people on the ground, you know, emotionally for their own biography, for their own experiences, only really becomes apparent when you talk to these people. And stories like that would get lost if you don't talk to the people now whilst they're still around to, to do just that. Exactly. So I wonder if you could take us back to the very beginning of this story, um, which you start in 1949, and tell us a bit about how East Germany began to rebuild itself as a socialist state um, in the ruins, really, of 1945, and what that meant for the ordinary people who were living through that time. Well, I think the thing that becomes apparent throughout the whole of the history of the GDR is that it's it's an artificial thing. It only exists because of the Second World War, basically where troop movements ended more or less in, in Germany and which parts of Germany got occupied by who. And so you have this decision by the, by the Great Four at the end of the um, Second World War, so that's the Soviet Union, um, Britain, the US and France, to split Germany up, not as separate countries, but just to occupy it and do, so that everybody could look after one part of Germany and nobody had to do the, the whole thing, basically, given that there was no government um, in Germany left that had sort of any uh, moral legitimacy apart from anything else. Um, and so you end up with, you know, kind of this quite random decision where which part of Germany would be occupied by who. Um, and over time, over the four years after the Second World War, from 1945 to 49, this kind of way in which these occupation zones are run diverges further and further until you have that cemented in the foundation of West Germany first as a country, which is the three Western zones, and then East Germany as a separate country half a year later in October 1949, set up as a separate state um, as well. But I, st I start the story actually quite a lot earlier because I think it's really important once again to understand the human side and to understand where the East German communists that are tasked with setting up East Germany actually come from. And it's really interesting that a lot of them were not only part of communist movements in the 1920s and had sort of tried before during the Weimar Republic to set up some sort of German communist state, but then actually flee the Nazis um, during the 1930s and many of them ending up in Soviet Russia because they think that's kind of a safe refuge and it's also the first real you know, existing state that is actually doing what they've been dreaming of for decades, namely setting up a sort of socialist slash communist state. Um, and they get quite disillusioned to start with because it's not quite what they think it is. And also then Stalin's purges set in, this great terror of the 1930s. Um, and that targets German communists as well. So all Germans in Russia get targeted because Stalin gets very paranoid about the idea of a fifth column for Hitler being there. And of the Politburo of the, of the German Communist Party that existed in the 1920s, uh, nine of them go to Russia, and only two of these nine are still alive at the end of the war. So it just gives you an idea of how dangerous it was to to be a German communist during the war in Russia. And I think the paranoia and the angst and the kind of psychological impact of that never left these people. And do you think that we can see that paranoia in the shape that the state eventually took? We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, the the fact that from the beginning, from 1950, so this is kind of a few months after the state was set up, um, the infamous Stasi, the, the secret police, uh, the Ministry of State Security gets set up. It calls itself the, the sword and shield of the party and therefore it gives the party official this, officials this kind of idea that, you know, they're there to protect it. Um, any kind of um, insurgencies or, or dissidents will be kind of identified and rooted out immediately. And politicians initially take comfort from that and allow this organisation a huge amount of range in terms of uh, not just surveillance, but also interference with people's lives, especially in the early years, people literally get abducted, put in prisons, uh, get tortured, often handed over to the Soviets, which which was often akin to a, to a death sentence, really, um, either by direct sentencing to death or by, by being sent to a, into the gulag system in, in Russia. Um, and all of that escalates as as the GDR progresses into into the most comprehensive surveillance state in the world, which is why the GDR is still largely known for the for the Stasi and the surveillance um, apparatus that it, it cultivated. I'm interested by how much this bled into the ordinary lives of everyday people in the GDR. How present was the fact that people knew they were being watched by the Stasi or the secret police? I think most people, if not all people, perhaps um, knew that they were being watched and that their lives were being watched. Um, but it totally depended who I spoke to, how much that bothered people. I found it quite amazing that a lot of people were saying to me, well, it, it, that was just what it was like. You know, and I'd say to them, like, didn't it bother you that, that the state was observing your life and, and making notes on your friends, your partners, you know, affairs that people had, like all of that was was noted down in 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 files. If you were kind of somebody on the on the radar of the regime, um, and a lot of people said, well, you know, you don't know what it was like. We we grew up with this. It was like that. You know, we just accepted that as part of of the way that you know one one lived one's life. And many people said it it really had no consequence or no, no bearing on their lives. So. 
you know, my, I mentioned my own father as an example in the book who, um, because he was an officer in the Air Force, effectively, had to do with sort of sensitive radio technology and, and sort of signaling and things like that. So the state was a bit worried about kind of who you kept contact with and, and the fact that my, my mum, who he was about to marry, had a lot of relatives in West Germany. And so they took him to the side almost kind of every few weeks and said to him, you know, did you know that your future parents-in-law have got relatives in the West? And he said, well, of course I know that. You know, and they just sent him back out of the office. They just let him know that that they knew. Or when they'd go and, say, visit their relatives in Hamburg for a wedding or something, they, the, the Stasi would know this and sort of, it took a while to process it. And about six weeks later, they'd call him up again and say, you know, did you know that your future in-laws had gone to Hamburg? And he said, well, of course I knew. And as far as I know, they, you know, they came back and it was legal and, you know, what's the problem? And again, they just sent them away and it was kind of just drip feeding this idea that, that they're watching you um, into his mind. And at some point they actually suggested that if he wanted to further his career or kind of even stay in this really sensitive signaling type uh, work, uh, that maybe he should rethink his kind of choice of, of fiancé. Um, that was kind of one of the options put on the table when he said absolutely not. Again, nothing happened as such, but they just took him out of that area and put him in a different type of of kind of career trajectory. Um and suggested that maybe it's capped at some point. But, you know, this is again, I said to him, like, did that not infuriate you? What's it to the state who you marry and who you don't marry? But yeah, he said, said the same thing. It sounds terrifying. So it's really interesting to hear what you say about how quickly people adapted to new circumstances and just took it as part of everyday life. Were there other hardships outside of surveillance and policing um, that were a characteristic of daily life in the GDR as well? I think to start with, there was real material hardships. So it's interesting when I spoke to older East Germans who sort of experienced literally the whole the whole of the GDR, um, they said that they were, for the most part, quite enthusiastic about things in 1949 and 1950 because they believed once the state was just set up, it was kind of an opportunity to start a new Germany. You know, they, they'd undergone, they were children or, or kind of, you know, teenagers during the Nazi years. So so their world had literally just completely collapsed and they saw the calamity of that in their own lives. And they believed that because of the way that the GDR set itself up as the opposite of Nazism or as an anti-fascist state, that was kind of its foundation dogma, that here was a new Germany, a better Germany that they wanted to build. And when that kind of didn't lead to the success that they were imagining and, and they were still, they were working incredibly hard, longer and longer shifts and, and there was nothing on the shelves. Uh, flats weren't being rebuilt, you know, the, the city still lay in ruins. And when people saw that, that that was real kind of, you know, economic hardship. Whilst in the West, you had this economic miracle at the same time and, and people were talking to Western relatives you know, who were telling them of all the things that they had again. So consumerism and kind of providing the population with um, stuff was especially at the beginning a problem. But that was settled relatively uh, quickly throughout the 1950s and 1960s. And the GDR actually had the highest living standards in the communist world. So it was still lagging behind the West in that sense. Um, but one should perhaps also say that there is no absolute, or there was no absolute poverty either. This is kind of classless society means, of course, that you don't have luxury kind of at the top end, but equally um, kind of unemployment and precarious work and, and these kind of issues that working class people were, were grappling with in, in the West don't exist either as kind of existential fears. So it's, it's a strange society to try and think your way into. Yeah, you mentioned the, um, the idea of a classless society, which was obviously at the, the centre of the communist regime's 
ideology. But how much do you think that that was really achieved in the GDR? Were class divisions really destroyed or diminished? Not destroyed, I'd say. I mean, they still existed, not least because of kind of cultural advantages that you just have if you come out, you know, from a middle class family and you've got a bookshelf at home and a piano in the corner and, you know, people teach you things when you're younger. This kind of thing that, you know, people call cultural capital is difficult to to diminish or to get rid of over time. Um, but it, it was also true that working class people for the first time felt that they were actually in the centre of German politics. I mean, the Nazis had kind of propagated that they would do that and they'd, they'd introduced um, holiday schemes and, and kind of things like that. But equally, they'd got rid of um, trade unions, for example, and, and made people, you know, obviously work particularly hard throughout the uh, war effort and, and then into the into the 1940s in particular. So the Weimar Republic previously, you know, promised it would be a working class state. And yet it only got 7% of working class kids into higher level schools. And, and therefore, you know, university, the, the ratio was even lower. So for the first time, really, in German politics, there was an actual government in charge that really made this the heart of what they wanted to do. For example, officer roles were were made available to working class people. Um, they were encouraged to go to university. So teachers were particularly encouraged to pick working class kids um, for, for university places and for further education. I should maybe say my own family benefited from that as well. So my, my mum in particular came from a kind of classic working class family. So both of her parents were, were factory workers and it, at school people realised that she was quite smart and, and was best in, the, in her class and therefore was chosen to to go on not only to do like A-levels but then also go on to university. This happened everywhere on lots of scales where working class people were at the centre, which also means that a lot of middle class people took disadvantages because they didn't find it as easy anymore to, to compete for these, for these places. Mm. So there were definitely some people who were offered more opportunity under this regime than they might have been in West Germany, for example. Yeah, and you see that in the statistics as well, um, in terms of um, university, for example, in terms of working class background of students and, and later university staff. Um, there was only a real shift in West Germany under the first social democratic government. Um, so this is Willy Brandt's government coming in in 1969. Um, and from then onwards, you see a bit of a shift. Um, but even so, you know, even by the end of, of German division, so by 1990, there's still a tiny minority of West German students come from not from kind of upper middle class backgrounds, um, just because it is largely unaffordable to people. Whilst in, in East Germany, you had... Um, not only kind of free university education, but also, you know, living was quite cheap. Um, you were giving given sort of scholarships and things like that to, to just live off. They also depended on your um, on your actual achievements. So if you were particularly good at something, you'd actually get more money from the state to study. Um, so this all made it a bit more affordable and easier to do. Um, childcare is another huge issue. So for women, it was absolutely possible to uh, say later on in life, go back to to do another apprenticeship or to study or even to have your first child as you're at university. So, you know, going back to my own example, my mum was only 22 when I was born and she was at university and, and had me basically on campus with her. There were like mother and child homes to live in. You just one of her tram stops on the way from her student home to university. She just stopped there 
there was the kind of childcare facility there where I'd just get dropped, basically. And then on the way back from the lecture, she could pick me back up and, and go back back home where there was like a whole kind of room with a cod there and other young mothers um, in the same place. So all of that supported families that didn't naturally have that support background themselves. It was really fascinating, I think, in, in your book to, to learn about some of those demographic differences between East and West Germany. As you say, East Germany in general, people had children much younger. It's interesting to basically take a country that's uh, culturally and ethnically the same, divide it in two, give it two different regimes and see what happens over the 40 years. What would you say were some of the other biggest cultural or demographic differences between East and West Germany by the end of those 40 years? Well, I find what you just said in itself quite remarkable. You basically got an open field experiment there of 41 years of alternative kind of, you know, politics, society, culture. Um, and as you say, kind of taking the same people is like a field experiment over well over four decades. So it's interesting, I think, to study the GDR and take it seriously from that angle alone. Um, another example I can think of is culture. So the, the fact that, again, this is written off largely because censorship existed, and of course it existed. But the flip side of that is that culture was heavily subsidized by the state. So you had artists basically could live by being artists because the state would fund them and train them. Uh, Nina Hagen is a classic example, who's, who's quite well known in the West as a punk artist because she left the GDR at the end of the 1970s um, because of her kind of family background where they had dissidents in the family and, and they, they left. But beforehand, she was trained as a as a singer by, you know, basically through state money. And then the, the kind of most famous song, maybe the one that Angela Merkel chose for her leaving ceremony, in in 2021 uh, was you you forgot the color film it's just kind of like a pastiche quite jokey song about how the woman who sings the song her boyfriend forgot the color film for the camera when they went on holiday and she complained that afterwards nobody would see how nice it all was because it's all black and white you know all of that is state-funded art um, and it makes it not only possible for the artists to to do that but also for people to consume so it wasn't expensive at all to go um, to the cinema or to the theatre um, or to concerts and they were deliberately made accessible. Their whole libraries were put into factories and into schools and they were well stocked. As Philip Altman, for example, has pointed out in his book about the Stasi poetry cycle, um, this is one of the most well-read societies in the world. Yes, there's censorship, but people read a lot um, and they can also read a lot and some of the literature that comes out of it you know, I'm mentioning in the book, I talk about Christa Wolf, Divided Heaven, which became a bestseller East and West and was translated into lots of languages worldwide, criticizes the wall and division and, and what it actually did to people quite heavily. And yet she was a state sponsored and quite prominently political um, writer herself. Or Brigitte Reimann, who's just been translated into English by, by Penguin and with the siblings. It's the first translation now, but it was published straight after the, the wall was built in the first place. And again, she talks in the book about her brother leaving for the West and what that does to the family. And, and it's quite a critical sort of analysis of of the wall and, and what it did to Germany as a, as a whole. All of that existed and it was funded by um, and made possible by the state um, to some extent. And therefore, I think that's also, again, an interesting example of where you have a completely different model of doing things. There is control, but there's also opportunity in the, in the amount of ownership that the state took of, of culture. 
Well, you brought up the wall there, and we have managed to get about half an hour into this conversation without mentioning the wall, which of course is in the title of your book, and it casts casts a huge shadow over this story. Um, can you tell us a bit about ordinary people's responses to the construction of the wall and an attempt at a mass exodus as well? Yeah, I found it again interesting that it completely depended on who I was talking to, how much of a role it played in people's lives. So there are these horrendous stories, people's families being torn apart or somebody being split from from the workplace in West Berlin that they worked at whilst they lived in the East, you know, because the wall was put up overnight, literally, in August 1961. It, it caught out a lot of people. You know, there's always this argument, you know, why didn't you move earlier? Because it was absolutely possible to move from East Berlin to West Berlin before 1961, which is why you have this mass exodus that you just mentioned, millions of people leaving between 1949 and and 1961, because it was legal and easy and and not dangerous to do that. And so people do, you just travel to East Berlin, walked across into West Berlin, and then you could leave from West Berlin into West Germany. But it does catch a lot of people by surprise when the wall is suddenly put up because it was completely secret, um, this whole operation. So there are extremely kind of remarkable stories, like some of the ones I mentioned in the book of a, of a lady, for instance, who lived uh, in a part of Berlin where she was suddenly surrounded, like her house was literally surrounded on three sides by the wall, like overnight. So, you know, she just looked out of her window and suddenly on the one side, you've still got the water as it always was. But on the other side, there's like Spanish riders there, like these kind of uh, barbed wire uh, constructions that that made the wall um, kind of in its early phases where where it wasn't kind of put up as an actual physical wall yet, um, and you know she just didn't know what to do, and then eventually decided, well, this is my home, I'm going to stay here, despite the fact that you know she could have literally still walked across on that morning, um, but chose not to. Um, but then on the flip side, I spoke to other people who said, well, you know, I was on holiday at the time because it was August. Um, and I read it somewhere in the newspaper and, and took note of it, but really it didn't matter because I had no relatives in the West, it didn't really matter to me. Um, and yet other people who said in our village, the last GP had gone and we didn't have any medical care anymore. And so they were relieved when the wall was put up and it kept, you know, these kind of mostly middle class skilled people like medical personnel, engineers, um, you know, kind of skilled tradesmen, people like that who who were most likely to leave. It forced them to stay in. So there were also people who said that they were kind of relieved that suddenly the situation had been resolved, that that had been worrying a lot of people for a long time as well. So it's once again a story that's a lot more complex than than you'd think to start with. Yeah, and it's that diversity of opinions that makes this so interesting. I'm guessing that you would see a similar thing in terms of ordinary people's attitudes about the state, that some people would be in favour and some people would be against. Is that something that you found when you were talking to people? Yeah, that's true. And it also changed a lot over time. Um, So it depends completely, you know, what time you're looking at. So what I was saying earlier about kind of these early years being really kind of full of enthusiasm the first couple of years, that's something I heard from a lot of people. So I think that that was probably the overwhelming sense there. But then you get 1953 as an absolute outburst of anger where there's a mass uprising against the state with one million people out on the streets. That's a lot of people to be very angry with the state. And that's only the people who actually went out onto the streets, I would imagine for every one of those, there's another one that stays at home and is equally angry. So what triggered that in 1953? Uh, Mostly living standards. So the fact that people were asked to work harder and harder and harder, and yet there was nothing to buy from their 
from their money in the shops and they were looking westward, seeing what, what West Germany had achieved in the meantime. And the problem in the East was that Russia was actually taking a lot of reparations out of its zone and, and then its, its kind of allied state. Um, whilst the West had decided not to do that. So West Germany didn't pay any reparations, um, or hardly any. Um, whilst East Germany had 60% of its ongoing production. So this is literally people putting stuff onto assembly lines and then the Russians standing at the, or the Soviets standing at the end of the assembly line and taking the stuff away from it. And it was hugely frustrating for people that I spoke to. Um, and yet, you know, you work kind of 14, 16, 17 hours a day and you get nothing for it at the end. And the state just sits there literally with its fingers in its ears going... We're not listening to to you. We, you know, we don't take your concerns seriously. To start with, people are actually still trying to talk to the state as well. So even the the workers on the Stalinallee who who start this in Berlin, who start this um, uprising um, on the sixteenth of June, go out there to the to the government buildings and demand to speak to Walter Albrecht, the head of the of the government, and say, you know, we, we need to speak to you. Something's going very wrong here. And he just stands there and goes, oh, it's raining. They're surely going to disperse soon. You know, and they didn't disperse, obviously, because they were far too angry to be bothered by the rain. So it's this obstinacy combined with the, with the bad living standards and the kind of disillusionment of what had happened with this utopia that many people actually thought they were going to build uh, that causes that. And you see that throughout the history of the GDR, you get these kind of waves of relative contentment and people thinking now something's going to happen. The early 70s are another classic example, which many people seem to remember as a kind of time of of renewal, of a chance to do something different, of reform. Um, and then that's squashed again by the obstinacy and this paranoia, for instance, that I mentioned earlier doesn't go away. All of that kind of stuff in the old leaders, because you never get a new generation of leaders in. Even the very last one, Eric Honecker, who stays in until 18, 1989, was still somebody who sat in a Nazi prison. You know, you're still looking at people who came out of the Second World War with this kind of paranoia in their mind and with a certain kind of very Soviet idea as to how to run a, a country still running a country that should be fairly modern by the 1980s, given its economic and, and human potential and, and the kind of very well-trained, well-educated uh, people that, that they're trying to oversee. So it, it fluctuated a lot across time as well. And so do you think it was this outdated leadership that ultimately led to the collapse of East Germany in 1989? Yeah, I mean, the economics have a lot to do with it as well, given that the, the Soviet Union was on the brink of collapse. Um, and then Mikhail Gorbachev came in, in in 1985 and said from the beginning he was going to open up a society with this kind of twin slogans of, of glasnost and perestroika. So glasnost meaning openness um, and, and transparency, opening up the system, allowing censorship to, to, to fall away. And at the same time, restructuring perestroika, meaning kind of opening up the regime to, to um, a more sort of capitalist, more market type economy. And that had an effect on the entire Eastern Bloc, including East Germany, because basically it was, it was taking more of a hands-off approach saying to everyone in the Eastern Bloc, um, find your own way of doing things. Um, we won't interfere, basically because they can't interfere anymore. There's a lot, lot of economic reasons behind that. But on the flip side, um, people are still willing to talk about reform and change. So even the kind of critics of the regime, even the most vocal ones, on the whole, when you look at the rhetoric in, in 1989, 
are still arguing for reform of the GDR rather than reunification with Germany. That comes a little bit later and it changes very quickly over that winter of, of 1989, 1990. But beforehand, there's a lot of change about finding some sort of third way, as people called it, between socialism and, and a kind of completely free market economy. And that, I think, is quite remarkable. And there you see the regime really digging its heels in and saying, no, that's not happening or it's not happening at your pace, it's happening at our pace. Um, and I think it was really hampered by the by the fact that there was no willingness from kind of the top to respond to things that came from from many. So even all of these kind of things that we would probably deem progress today. So women's rights, you know, the workers opportunities, social mobility, they're all reforms that start from above. And this is something I think that gets into the heads of the, the people at the top is they make progress. It's not for the people to decide what they want. Um, but even so, uh, even if they tried, I think, to, to do something, the economic uh, problems that the GDR had as a result of the collapse of the Eastern Bloc on the whole were, were staggering. It's hard to see how they would have got past those. So we're more than three decades on from reunification now. How would you characterise Germany's relationship with its East German past today? Uh, I think it's highly problematic still. Um, I mean, even as we record this, there's a story that came out with the head of the Springer concern, which is like the largest or one of the largest media concerns in Germany. They run the Bildzeitung, for example, the largest newspaper in Europe, who said that East Germans always hover between being fascists and communists and that they are disgusting and that they can't get kind of a normal life, normal society. They just don't get it. They just don't understand it. And when that attitude isn't openly expressed, but you know that kind of somebody who's so influential that they dominate the tone of the German media, the mass media, has that sort of attitude, you, you see that reflected in the way that people write and talk about East Germany and East Germans. I mean, every time it's on the news, you see news reporters turning up in some rundown village somewhere in deepest, darkest Brandenburg, you know, talking to an old lady who will confirm exactly the stereotypes that people are looking for. Even the person who was responsible for East German affairs in Angela Merkel's government, who was herself East German, um, said that he thinks that a lot of East Germans are simply lost to democracy and that there's, there's something that there's nothing that they can do about this. So there's almost this kind of idea that People are inherently different now and, and, you know, inferior also in terms of their um, education or their attitudes or their, their their way of life and therefore not kind of native Germans or not, not part of this kind of new Western style Germany that has been set up in the West in 1949. And I think that's largely to do with the fact that these stereotypes that we talked about at the beginning that exist in the West, kind of beyond Germany, also exist in Western Germany, which was at the forefront of the Cold War and therefore also at the brunt of some of its kind of most aggressive and most damaging, I'd say, psychological components in the sense that people in the West also grow up with the idea of the East as an enemy just like it happened the other way around. And just because you live in a society with less censorship doesn't mean that you're not exposed to a particular ideology or way of thinking about the other side. And as those people, middle-aged people who'd experienced this Cold War hostility themselves, are still largely in charge of opinion making and of shaping the media landscape, I think that's got a lot to do with the continuous kind of stereotyping of East Germans in in Germany in the media. And how, finally, would you like to see those attitudes change? Well, I think a lot of it has just simply got to do with understanding and empathy. So something that I was trying to do with the book is just humanising people, you know, just, just making 
the politics, the way of life, the way that people experience their country understandable from an outsider's point of view. So whilst the book is told kind of from an East German perspective, because of all of the interviews and the, the documents and things that I've chosen to to use, it's hopefully done in a way that it becomes obvious to somebody who wasn't part of this, or at least to give them a glimpse or an insight into what it would have been like for those people and therefore why their attitudes, their way of life, their kind of the way that they are is still visible today. So one example we said earlier about families being younger, there's a social dimension there, I think, when you have generations that are much shorter, people grow up with with parents that, you know, are in their 20s, basically, when, when you're a child, that's a completely different style of parenting, you know, both parents go to work, that was completely normal. So I'd come home, you know, aged kind of seven, eight, nine with a key in my hand, like coming home, cooking my own like lunch and, you know, doing my homework, whatever. Then at some point my, my parents would both get home at kind of five, six o'clock. Um, that's a completely different way of growing up. It's going to create a different kind of cultural background and, and different expectations and different ways of doing things. And that's just one small example of, you know, thousands of things that people did differently for 41 years. And so what I'd like to see is just to take that emotional heat and that intensity and particularly the hostility away out of the debate as far as that's possible now one generation on and introduce a degree of curiosity and empathy basically about what it was actually like, you know, away from the ideology and and just looking at kind of the realities. I, I would like to mention something about East Germany without having to add a great big but at the end of it and then, you know, kind of go back into the standard narratives. That was Katja Hoyer speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Katja's book is Beyond the Wall, East Germany, 1949 to 1990, which is published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.